0: Hopefully you've got a Bible with you this morning. I would encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 2. Last Sunday, if you were with us, we looked at Peter, his really unusual analogy of rocks that are alive, of living stones, is how he put it. And he said that Christ is the living cornerstone. He's precious to those who believe. But to those who refuse to believe, who do not believe... He says that Christ is a stumbling block. So he's still a rock. He's just a stumbling block to those who don't believe. And Peter equated Christians. If you believe, he said that you are a living stone. So like Christ, though he is the cornerstone, you also are a living stone. You're alive. You're being built up into this spiritual structure that God is building. God as the architect and as Living stones, Christians are, as Peter calls them, a holy priesthood. People who offer spiritual sacrifices that aren't acceptable because of anything that they are, but they're acceptable through Jesus Christ. He says in those first six, seven verses. Today, Peter's going to continue explaining the priesthood idea In verses 8b, the last half of verse 8 through verse 12. Let's read that together and ask God to bless his word. Chapter 2, verse 8, the second part. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Would you pray with me? Lord, as living stones, as a holy priesthood, as a people who have been chosen for your own possession. We want to hear and understand your word today. And I'm inadequate in my own ability, and so may your spirit be what people hear and understand today. Lord, we do pray for discernment in these things, that you would teach, that you would guide and Lord, that we might love you more as a result of what we hear and learn today. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So last week, uh, you may not have noticed, but I stopped in the middle of verse 8. And this week we start in the middle of verse 8. And I did that for a reason, because uh, I think there's enough here in the end of verse 8 um, that we kind of start here and continue on today. Uh, as I mentioned, Peter is saying in this second chapter that Jesus is the cornerstone of the building that God is raising, that God is, is raising up. And so verse eight, I think continues with that same idea, but it moves beyond just the results and asks the question, why, well, why is Jesus considered the rock of offense? Why do some people stumble over him? And I think Peter gives us the answer at the end of verse eight. He says they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. So people who are disobedient to the word who reject the cornerstone they stumble over Jesus. This passage I think is 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 difficult in a sense, but not so much difficult to understand as it is dis- difficult to accept. So what should serve as our foundation in this discussion is the sovereignty of God and his wisdom. So when we pl- when we start applying our own judgment to these things, we're in danger. What are we in danger of? We're in danger of taking the place of God, right? For us to say, well, God, this, is, this isn't this is fair. This is not right. Now, we have asserted ourselves over him, and we're getting things very out of balance, and we're in danger of believing and practicing things that just really aren't true. Uh, I, I had the, pra- the privilege of leading our youth in youth group last week, and we've been going through the book of Romans, and wouldn't you know where I got to, to lead the youth group in? Romans chapter 9. Now, if you're familiar with Romans, you understand why that's a big deal to teach that to students. They did awesome in understanding and in learning some of those things. But if you look back at Romans 9 in your Bible and 10, you're going to see some of the same themes that 8b in 1 Peter chapter 2 are getting at here. And it's it's God's sovereign choice, sovereignty of God in youth group. We looked at most of Romans chapter 9 and we came to this conclusion, specifically that God's gift of mercy is not a gift that any person can demand he give them, because then it wouldn't be mercy. So we can't demand that mercy, but it's also not a gift that we can boast in if he's given it to us. So no matter what God chooses to do with his mercy, he's right and good in doing it. In Romans chapter 9, Paul brings up the lineage of the Jews. He talks about Abraham and he talks about Isaac and he talks about Jacob and Esau specifically. And he does this to help the Jews see that just because they can point back to one of these guys in their family tree, that doesn't automatically mean that they're right with God. And he goes on to say in verse 11 of Romans 9 that even before Jacob and Esau were born, Before they had done anything good or bad, God exercised his purpose of election. And Paul quotes the Lord in the book of Malachi, Malachi 1, verse 2 and 3, and he's saying there, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Okay, now today's message is more than just chapter 2, verse 8b, okay? So we're going to get through this quickly, but there's enough misunderstanding, I feel like, about the biblical doctrine of election that I wouldn't be a good pastor to you if I just skipped over it without saying anything. So I don't want to spend all of our time together on this, but I do want to spend a little bit because I, I can probably guess to some degree what you're thinking when you hear Paul quote the Lord in Malachi chapter 1 saying, Jacob I loved, Esau have I hated, and you're, you're saying, whoa, whoa, whoa hang on a second, God hated Esau? That doesn't sound like the God of the Bible that I've heard about. I'm not so sure I really like this idea. I get that. I do. And this is why I said this concept is not easily accepted. Now, as is always the case when we're reading Scripture, understanding the language and the words, especially in their original language, really help us. So when we use the word hate... We use it in a different way than what this instance in the Bible is really using it. When we use the word hate, we, we mean a strong dislike for. Like we, I hate Brussels sprouts or whatever it is. I actually like them, but maybe you hate them. Whatever it is, you say, I have a strong dislike for that. Well, when God says that he hated Esau, he's not talking about Esau's character. It's not a judgment on his character. It's just a description of the display of mercy he was pouring out. Because as Paul says in Romans 9-11, they hadn't done anything good or bad. They hadn't even been born yet. I think Luke chapter 14 verse 26 helps us here too. Feel free to turn there if you'd like. Luke chapter 14 verse 26. Jesus actually uses the same word. He says hate. And he uses it in the same way. Now in this story in Luke chapter 14, Jesus is surrounded by a bunch of people, great crowds of people, the Bible says, and he is describing what it takes for someone to really follow him. If you, he's saying, if you really want to follow me, here's what has to happen. This is what he says. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father, And mother and wife and children and brother and brothers and sisters. Yes, even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Now, does that mean that Jesus is saying that all married men should hate their wives and children should hate their parents? Well, not in the sense that we use the word and understand the word hate. No, scripture is very clear about how children ought to honor and obey their father and their mother. Very clear about the kind of love that a husband should have for his wife. So Jesus is using a comparison here when he uses the word hate, a comparison about the outpouring of love and to teach what it means to follow him. So those who follow him ought to have so much love for him that it might appear to others as if they hate everything else that is dear to them. Followers of Jesus prefer him, they choose him, they love him over anything else in their life. And that includes husbands, wives, children, mothers, fathers, etc., They choose Jesus over their physical families. Now, this was probably as shocking to the crowds that heard him there as it is to us even today, that Jesus would actually say this kind of a thing. But so this helps us understand the usage in Scripture of the word hate. So when God says that he hated Esau, what he's saying is that he preferred Esau, I'm sorry, he hated Esau, he preferred Jacob over him. He chose Jacob and not Esau. Okay, well, let's continue down this road. Romans 9, 14, Paul answers the question that just popped into your head, probably. Well, wait a second. Isn't that unfair? Isn't that mean that there's injustice injustice on God's part? And he answers that in chapter 9, verse 14 of Romans. He says, by no means. He says, of course not. God forbid that there be any unrighteousness in God. And then Paul points to another Old Testament character in the person of Pharaoh. He's just talking about Pharaoh from the book of Exodus. He points him out to prove what he'd already explained in in Romans 1, that God doesn't make men evil. It would be unbiblical, in fact, to say that God causes someone to sin. There's no evil in God. There's no deceit. There's no darkness. There is no influence to do wrong at all. But I do think that Romans 1 And Romans 9 show that God, and this is the phrase that Paul uses four times in the book of Romans. In fact, the first chapter, he says God gave them up to their desires. Four times to their own, he gave them up to their own lusts and impurities. And when evil is pursued without any restraint from the hand of God, consciences are seared and hearts are hardened just like Pharaoh's was. I think this is what Paul was getting at. And this is, I think, where many of us get tripped up in this idea, this doctrine. We, we begin to think, well, wait a second. If God is good, then, he, then he's supposed to save everybody. That's how it's fair. And we suppose that the on, that is the only way for God to be fair and just. And Paul addresses that thought in Romans 9 as well. He explains that a potter has complete control over the clay that he's molding. Right? Uh, We talked in youth group about Play-Doh. You've used Play-Doh before and you've made a snake out of Play-Doh. That snake doesn't tell you you were wrong to make it a snake. It doesn't tell you it should have been made into a hippo. It doesn't tell you any of those things because you as the potter, so to speak, have control over what you do with the clay. God doesn't show mercy based on the merit of the person or the indwelling potential for goodness even. Remember he talked about Jacob and Esau, he says, before they had done anything good or bad. So in Romans chapter one through three, Paul is just making abundantly clear that if indwelling goodness or the potential for righteousness were the criteria for God to save someone, then no one would be saved. And you can look back at chapter 3. Remember chapter 3, verse 23? For all have sinned. Everyone. Everybody's sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You can't claim to be exempt from that. And he goes on to tell us it's because of indwelling sin. Romans 6.23 tells us what happens because of sin. The wages of sin is what? Is death. And so Paul is, is really... Teaching and making clear in the book of Romans that if we were to demand utter fairness across the board, no one would be saved. Nobody would. So God, in his sovereign wisdom and love, he chooses to show mercy. Paul's major point, I think, in those things is to help his Jewish brothers understand that their physical heritage does not matter. But God's calling and election does matter. And part of the thing that the Jews were struggling with that Paul was teaching them about was the fact that God was calling Gentiles as well as Jews. So salvation must be based on God's sovereignty, not inward goodness, not on your family tree. God's choice, God's sovereignty. And Paul says in Romans 9:11 that this is all this all happens so that God's purpose of election might continue not because of works, but because of him who calls. Not according to our works. He backs this up in Ephesians chapter 2, not because of works cuz works so that no man may boast, but we're saved by grace through faith. I shared an illustration last Sunday evening with the youth that I thought was really helpful. It's I saw it from a guy named D. James Kennedy. You may have heard of him. So this is his illustration. So imagine if I am him reading this to you, saying this to you. He says, Here are five people who are planning to hold up a bank. They're friends of mine. I find out about it, And I plead with them. I beg them not to do it. Finally, they push me out of the way and they start out. I tackle one of the men and wrestle him to the ground. The others go ahead, rob the bank. A guard is killed. They're captured, convicted, and sentenced to death. The one man who is not involved in the robbery, he goes free. Now I ask this question, Whose fault was it that the other men died? Now, this other man who was walking around free, can he say, because my heart is so good, I'm a free man? The only reason that he is free is because of me, because I restrained him. So those who go to hell have no one to blame but themselves. Those who go to heaven have no one to praise but Jesus Christ. Thus we see that salvation is all of grace from its beginning to its end. When Peter talks about people who stumble over Jesus in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 8, I think he's in full agreement with what Paul is saying in Romans. Paul said and used the language that God gave them up to the results of their willful disobedience. And I think Peter includes with this their rejection of Christ as the cornerstone. Not only do they willfully disobey, but they reject Jesus as their only saving cornerstone. R.C. Sproul helps us understand this better too, I think. says, They were appointed to a destiny of judgment on the basis of their unbelief, their disobedience, because that is the inevitable conclusion for all who refuse to bow before Christ. All who reject the cornerstone find that very stone to be that which will trip them up forever. Now, thankfully, Peter doesn't stop right there at verse 8. He continues on. He goes on to contrast those who disobey and those who do obey. Look at verse 9. He calls Christians a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Those who have been saved by his mercy, those who practice obedience, those who are putting away the works of darkness, those who have been born again and ransomed by the precious blood of Jesus, those are the chosen ones of God who make up the spiritual house as living stones. This is how Peter has already described Christians. Now, I hope it should go without saying here, but I feel the need just for clarification's sake to go ahead and say this again, but no one who has truly been saved, no one who has truly been born again, believes that they were worthy of being called by God. This is why Christians ought to be the most humble, thankful, and servant-minded people on the entire planet. If you're proud of God and you would pat Him on the back for recognizing how good you are, You probably need to take a long look in the mirror and a long look at the book of Romans and be put in your place. Peter says that God's people are indeed chosen. They are a chosen people, a chosen nation. This makes a lot of sense because Peter has been hitting on this idea and the fact that God's people are called out. So they are different. They're people that aren't comfortable or fully at home in this world. God's people don't act very much like the other people of the world. That applied both to physical Israel back in biblical times, but you know what? It still applies to you and me in 2022. If the similarities between us as Christians and the world as non-Christians are greater than the differences, we need to really seriously considering how we're living. We really need to consider how we're living in verse 9, Peter uses four different terms for those who have been born again. We're not going to go through all of these specifically, but I do want to point them out again. These are the ways that Peter is describing Christians. He says they are a chosen race or a chosen generation or a chosen nation. They are a royal priesthood. We've kind of covered that already. They are a holy nation. They're, they're consecrated people. They've been set apart. And there are people for his own possession, a special group who God acquired for himself. He brought them in, he chose them, he brought them in, took them on to himself. So God's chosen and royal and holy and special people would live in contrast to the things that Peter had told believers to put away in verse 1 at the beginning of chapter 2. He said, put away all of these things, malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. Put those things away. Those do not represent Jesus Christ, and they should not be a part of the Christian's life. God's people were to be his special people, consecrated, set apart, different. But I already said it's not because we're special in and of ourselves. Now, how many of you guys have ever been to a museum? You can raise your hand, hopefully more than that. We've been to museums. Um, in museums, sometimes there's really neat pieces of artwork or art installments. Some of them, some of them, very dramatic and very ornate and that sort of thing. But sometimes, uh, even in the St. Louis Art Museum, there's some just kind of normal stuff. And you you walk around and you kind of wonder, like, why is there a notebook and a pen here? Like, why are, why is there a pair of shoes? in a glass case here. And it's kind of weird. And you think, well, this is just normal everyday stuff. I'm not going to go put my shoes in a glass case at home. Why are they doing it? Why are they doing it here? Why do they do that? Why do they have like shoes and hats and there's cooking pots and stuff like that there? Why? Well, commonplace stuff like that are in a museum because they belong to somebody famous because they belong to somebody important. And so that helps us understand then that God's stamp is on his people, right? Kids just like that trading card that Jason had. God's stamp is on them. That's what makes them valuable. God chooses and uses ordinary everyday people. And because he works in them, they're special. That's why they're special because they belong to God because his stamp is on them. Now, we could go through all of those things, but I'll just sum it up as briefly as I can. God's new people were to do new things. I'm going to say that a couple more times this morning, so I just want you to hear that. God's new people were to do new things. They weren't supposed to fall back into the pattern of the world, of the people around them. They weren't supposed to sacrifice to the same gods. They weren't supposed to have the same rituals. They were supposed to be different. They weren't supposed to copy the kind of heartless worship that the Pharisees displayed where they would clean the outside of the cup, but the inside was filthy dirty. That's not what they were supposed to do. They weren't supposed to act as if they were even in charge of themselves, like they were their own rulers. They were to speak and they were to act and they were to live as if they were called by God for the purposes that God had in mind for them. And so, so what's that? If God has chosen a special people and set them apart for a special purpose, what is that purpose? Verse 9 tells us. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. I'll quote R.C. Sproul again. He says, we have received our citizenship for the purpose of proclaiming God's praises. God's new people proclaim his excellencies because he has called them from what from darkness into what into light from darkness into light. You can't have both of those at the same time. If you go into a, a totally dark room and there's working electricity with a light switch and bulb and everything. If you go into a dark room and you flip on the light within fractions of a second, Darkness is gone. Darkness and light do not belong together. They cannot live together. But you know what? Darkness is our natural inclination. Darkness is what Jesus was talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3. Thinking past verse 16, Jesus says to him, he says, Light has come into the world, and men loved darkness rather than the light. Why? Because their deeds were evil. That's why. Remember Romans 3.23 says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Sin is a problem from the start for every one of us. We love darkness rather than light. Those who love darkness and practice evil hate the light, Jesus goes on to say, and they don't come to the light because their deeds would then be exposed and that's not what they want. I imagine in your mind you're drawing lines between some current events now and this kind of a thing. People don't want the light to come in because then the darkness would be exposed. And Jesus says that people like that who practice evil, who cling to sin and reject him, are condemned already. Because they have not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. So darkness is our natural habitat, if you will. Our natural disposition is not to run to God, it's to run where? Away from God. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. Soon as sin entered the world, they hid. They ran from the light. Darkness does not have power over the light. doesn't have power to snuff it out. As I mentioned, as soon as you turn on a light, darkness flees. So when God calls his people out of darkness, he knows that we wouldn't just stumble upon light on our own. So what did he do? He brought the light to us. John chapter 1. Some of my favorite verses in the Gospels. He brings the light to us. Just as God looked over the the earth that was formless and void in Genesis chapter 1, what did he say? Let there be light. He comes to us in our darkness and he does the same thing. John puts it this way in chapter 1 verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. Cannot overcome it. And of course, John goes on to say that the light he's referring to is the true light, the marvelous light, as Peter puts it, and it's Jesus Christ himself, the Messiah, the Son of God. And so to use Peter's own words, it is a marvel, it's marvelous when God shines the light of Christ into the darkness of a human soul. Has he done that in your life, in your soul? Has he shined the light are you hiding from it? Look at verse 10 in First Peter chapter two. Peter, I think, seems to consider this a little bit more, and he says, "Once you were not a people, <clears throat> but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy." I think Peter has in mind here the same passage that Paul quotes in Romans nine verse 25. It goes back to the book of Hosea. Now, if you remember the story of Hosea, God had uh, told Hosea to marry a wife who was a prostitute. Her name was Gomer. And when they had children together, God told them to name their kids specific names. The names are strange to us, to be sure, but they had reason and purpose. Their kids' names meant this. One of their kids' names meant, you are not my people. Another one of their kids' names meant, I will no longer have mercy. Do we see what Peter is getting at here? Now, because of the precious blood of Christ, what God told Hosea was miraculously reversed. Now, he says, you are the people of God. You once weren't, but now you are. Now you receive mercy. You once didn't, but now you do. And God has called believers out of darkness to be his own people, to be vessels of his mercy. This is what we were destined to do. This was a joy to the Jews of that time, I'm sure, to hear these things. But how incredible would it be to be a Gentile, someone not in God's chosen people at the time hearing these words of acceptance, words of love, once you were not a people. Once you had no home, now you belong. This this is just really incredible. And as the thought of God's mercy washes over his readers, Peter returns to another familiar idea. How those who come to Jesus are supposed to live differently. He keeps coming back to that. I think there's a reason, guys. Now remember, I said this before, this phrase, God's people... Do new, God's new people do new things. God's new people do new things. Consider the mercy of the Lord and let His mercy determine how you live your life. Peter says, beloved. Peter loves these people, those who he's writing to, but they're God's beloved. They're loved deeper than any person on earth could ever be loved by another person on earth. He says, beloved, I urge you, and he uses these two words, as sojourners and exiles, strangers and aliens, people who do not have a permanent dwelling on this earth. He just continues driving the point home that this world is not where we belong. We're simply passing through. Now, don't hear me wrong. God has given us a lot of things to do as we pass through. But we're just passing through. And since we belong to God, our citizenship is in heaven and the things of this life shouldn't consume every bit of our attention. There are more important things going on than what is happening in this world and what's happening in our life than just what's here and now. And look what he says. Look what Peter says. He says, abstain From the passions of your flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evil doers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. That first phrase there is probably more true and frustrating for Christians than we would really like to admit. The phrase that says, The passions of your flesh wage war against your soul. Notice the the wording that Peter uses. He doesn't say that the passions of your flesh might trip you up now and then. Does he? He says that they wage war on your souls. This is a battle that Christians are fighting. We live on a battleground. I've made this quote before. This is from a Puritan named John Owen. He said, Be killing sin... Or sin will be killing you. Peter has given some instructions to Christians on how to kill sin. Already though, hasn't he? Just glance back. Look at the first verse of chapter 2. Put away malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. That's one way to kill sin. Look back at chapter 1, verse 14. He says, Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. Verse 13 of chapter 1, prepare your minds for action. Be sober-minded. Those who have been born again are God's new people, and God's new people do what? New things. Instead of embracing sin, God's people aim to kill it. Instead of retreating back into the darkness to hide our sin, Christians walk boldly into the light. Where truth can be known. And that includes truth of our own sin, but also truth of the gospel, truth of God's word. Instead of just falling in line with people around them, Christians, Peter is saying that we set the tone in our culture by our conduct. We set the tone by our godly conduct. And he doesn't skirt around the issue that comes when we do that. When you are living your life to please God and not men, men take notice. Right? They do. They took notice of it in Jesus' life. And they told lies about him. They exaggerated truth. And even the truth that they saw, they spun it for their own purposes. And they persecuted him for it. And if we are to follow Jesus... We are to love him more than even our life itself. Then the day is coming when earthly, worldly people will accuse us of wrongdoing, of evil. That's what he says. What's to be our response? How should we respond? This is important. How are we to respond when people accuse us of evil doing? Are we to stand up in a public forum and defend ourselves? There may be a time for that, but that's not what Peter says here. Are we supposed to deny wrongdoing and instead point out the other person's fault? That's seemingly a lot easier to do, but that's not what Peter says to do. None of that kind of thing. He just says that Christians are just supposed to keep their conduct pure. Keep your conduct pure so that everyone may see the good that you do. Your honest work your worthy labor for the Lord. And when they see that, even though they want to speak evil against you, what are they going to do? They're going to give glory to God. This helps us understand that the lives of unbelievers are changed by the way Christians live their lives. You guys understand that? Let me kind of reverse the order there. The way that you live your life as a Christian impacts non-believers, those who would want to speak evil of you, look at your life, your godly, pure conduct, and they say, I cannot accuse them of anything. This is really incredible to consider that God's new people, by doing new things, have a part in God building up his kingdom in building up that spiritual building with you as living stones. And so Peter says, on the day of visitation, the day when the Lord judges everyone in righteousness, some people, just by the way that you live your life, by your pure conduct as a Christian, some people will be visited with mercy because they saw what you did and they gave glory to God. And again, this should never, in any circumstance, create arrogance in the life of a believer. It should always remind us that we too were once not a people, but now we are God's people. We once did not, should not have received mercy, but now, because of the precious blood of Christ, we do receive mercy. With that view of God's sovereignty in salvation and in all areas of our life. It's so much easier, not easy, but easier to perform the duties that God has called us to as a royal priesthood, a holy nation, those claimed for his own possession. Our duty is to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into light. Are you in the light? Or are you retreating in the darkness to conceal your sin? Because you know that the light will expose it. Let me encourage you. Let me challenge you today. If you're a Christian and you have been truly saved, born again, and you are retreating back into the light, stop. Stop retreating. Move boldly into the light. And let the truth of God and his word wash over you, cleanse you, restore fellowship with you and him. And if you've never truly been saved, if you've never put Christ as the president, the leader, the all-encompassing king of your life, if you've never put him there, today can be the day. Walk into the light and be saved. Because once you do, God has so much for you as we'll talk more about next week in chapter 2. Let's pray together. Lord, what a an encouragement. Lord, not to boast in any of this, because, boy, if anything, this morning we've been reminded that we don't have a reason to. And yet, Lord, it's miraculous to believe and know that by your mercy, through your grace, you have called sinners to repent and to be saved. And in your mercy, you're still calling people today. And Lord, inevitably, there's people listening this morning that don't actually know you. Maybe they they think they do, maybe they've claimed to, but deep down they know it's been a lie. And so Lord, I pray that they would, by the prompting of your spirit, by the effects of your mercy in their life, Lord, that they would step out, not necessarily into an aisle, Lord, but they would step out in faith and set their affection and their hope and their trust on nothing more than Jesus, because he is enough. And so, Lord, we as believers thank you for calling us out of the darkness into the marvelous light of Christ. May we now go, and may our conduct back up what we say that we believe. May it be pure, and so may many be turned to truth because of how Christians do new things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.